I am ready to go. All right, Tom's Take, made possible by J. Day and the Day Home Team of Real Estate Teams, talking to my friend Chris Offit. I've talked to Chris. I've talked about people, my colleagues with Chris, and they don't believe a lot of the things I'm saying. Author of uh, two short story collections, Kentucky Straight, which I consider you changed the literary world. Out of the Woods, The Good Brother, Same River Twice, No Heroes, My Father the Pornographer, Three Memoirs, Screenplays for Weeds, True Blood, Treme, has received awards from the Lanham, Whiting, Guggenheim Foundations, as well as the American Academy of Arts and Letters. New novel, Country Dark, in stores now, available now. Chris Offit. Hey, bud. Hey, Tom. Chris, how can we... Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice. How can we establish our bona fides as longtime blood brothers and friends? We go back to 1972. That's when I came to Moorhead, and you were in Breckenridge, the... uh, the high nope, school there I on campus. I was, at, I was in the county school. You were at Brown County High? Yeah. Oh, I thought you Brick- were a Breckenridge kid. No, I was not wealthy enough for the private school. Well, then how were you so involved with the theater department at Moorhead State University when we were there doing shows? You were the kid in just about every show. Uh, my mother and father were friends with the... Uh, the director of the theater program, and whenever they needed a kid in a cast, uh, I was the kid. It's amazing looking at like some of those MSU traveling alumni photos. People have those photos up on social media. It's amazing all those promotion pictures of some of the shows we did together. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. I appreciate the fact that I've had a growth spurt since then, a couple of them actually. My favorite was, without a doubt, we did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and I was oh, there. Yeah. yeah, man, that was awesome. You won the Best Actor Award for that, Tom. And you deserve the Best Supporting Actor for your incredible portrayal of a catatonic patient. I received the Best Minor Actor. Oh, for, for that award, you deserved every bit of that. <laughs> yeah. What was the one we did where we were in We were in battle, and Tom Carter was in it, and we were in battle crawling around on the floor? satirical kind of a show um, about uh, war. You were... Uh, was that the general with the nuclear... Yeah, by the end of it, you were all crippled up and blind, and I was reduced to a head speaking to another soldier, uh, you know, with our bodies below the set. That was, that was the greatest time of our lives, man. I've seen pictures of you and the mighty Tom Carter crawling around on the floor there. <laughs> I think Tom was the general and you were the colonel or something. I was the colonel or something, and I had been nuked, and uh, I yep. slowly deteriorated with nuclear uh, poisoning throughout the play. <laughs> that was Jules Pfeiffer. Was that the White House murder That's case? Right. That's right. That's exactly it. White House murder case, Jules Pfeiffer. Yep. And so this goes yep. back. Our, we have probably not stood in front of each other and seen each other for 40 years. Is that accurate? Mm, no, I, uh, 40 years. Uh well, it's maybe 25 or 30. I mean, we lived in New York together, at, you know, several years after that. We lived on the we lived on the Upper West Side at 105th and West End Avenue, and I was there, and Carl David was there, and uh, Cookie right. and Bernie were there. And you, did you just move to New York and move in with us? Is that how that worked? Yeah, yeah I just took a wild hair and hitchhiked to New York City to be an actor and uh, got a job as a mover. Was that with us? Yeah, yeah. I worked uh, for Beethoven's Indiana <laughs> Movers and Rembrandt's Art Mover. You know, really yeah. highfalutin, highfalutin uh, names of the businesses for kind of a cut-rate 
Records. Oh, man, that was a gypsy organization, the Rainbow uh, uh, Beethoven Piano Movers. Yeah. And so we were, funny. we were at 105th and West End Avenue, and then yep. you broke your leg in a football game in Riverside Park. That's right. And That's right. We, by that time, I think we were living on the east side. It was just you and me. It was that right? See, I thought you left New York for a while, then came back. Then you moved into 429 East 73rd. Man, I lived there for That's 15, right. I lived there for 15 years. We were we were there. Uh, that's where I got hurt. Okay, that's where I hurt my leg, and uh, uh, and then just didn't really have any choice but to return to college. <laughs> so I mean, I had dropped out, you know. You were working for the Hindu clothing place, <laughs> Mangaraji, I think it was the uh, you know religious group that imported clothes from India, and they had a warehouse at that time. I had given up the movers and was working in a warehouse, just really filling orders uh, for the clothing. And so then when you left New York, where did you go? You went back to Moorhead for a while? You go back to school? Yeah, I went back to school. Uh, You know, that time in New York when we lived together, Tom, I was 19. I had never been in a bookstore in my life, and I had never seen uh, visual art. I'd never seen a painting. And in New York, I saw both. I wandered around the bookstores and went to art galleries and museums. And when I went back to Moorhead with my leg in a cast, I decided to become a painter instead of an actor. And so I I studied painting for a year and dropped out again. (laughs) You know, I actually thought you were going to be a graphic artist when we first were together. Yeah. Do you ever draw any of your wild imagination pictures like you did then? Do you still do that at all? Because you were excellent. I still draw. Yeah, I like to draw. I make cartoons, small, uh, single-panel cartoons. I don't know how funny they are, but I, I like I like the, that form, and I, you know, study them and look at them, and and I can draw them. But my visual impulses have been more with a camera. That's why I wound up doing that several years later when I lived in Boston and Salem and all that. Yeah, you were a photographer, and I saw some of your work. I thought, well, this guy does everything well. He was an amazing actor, an amazing graphic artist, (laughs) and an amazing photographer. But if I recall, up on the Upper West Side, Mm -hmm. you pulled out a trunk, an old aluminum trunk, and and it was full of all your journals. You kept you kept journals in mm-hmm. in binders in three ring binders and it was full of journals did your siblings do that what made you start that no nobody uh, I was the only one who did it I don't know uh, Tom I started that when I was 12 I, I got one of those little oh I tell you what started it really was I read this book called Harriet the spy when I was a kid and Harriet was a sort of a misfit kid who carried around paper and pencil and wrote in her journal all the time. And I just was trying to, I copied her. I copied that habit. I still do it. Uh, and my journals go back to 1968. Wow. Um, well, and now I've, they're all with, uh, I managed to place that archive with Emory University in Atlanta. So they're all there, even the ones that were in that trunk. From New York. Wow, that's incredible. That was one of the most amazing things ever. And let's uh, establish what we're talking about. When we went to school in eastern Kentucky, it was the beginning of the Appalachian Mountains in Rowan County, Kentucky. And it was an isolated, beautiful college. You know what? You know how I came to Moorhead? Ronnie Harris. We went to high school together. And he, we did theater together my senior year. And mm-hmm. I saw that he went to Moorhead and I saw they had a great theater program and everybody was going to 
UK or Western or Eastern. And I said, mm-hmm. I'm following Ronnie. I'm going out to the mountains. Best decision I ever made. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I, uh, Ron was, he was a remarkable actor, too. I mean, I think there was a high school in Louisville that just kind of funneled the more promising young uh, students to Moorhead, where there was a great deal of freedom to perform theater. I mean, we did at least three per summer, and I don't know how many during the school year. You know, probably another six productions. That's a lot. It was a lot, yes. And then, of course, we all acted for everybody taking directing class, and so we were always in scenes. And do you remember shooting movies for Tom Carter? For the oh, people? yeah. yeah. wanted to make one of that... Uh, when you're coming back, Red Rider. Yes. A, is that the title of it? You know, When You're Coming Back, Red Rider, absolutely. That was a, a great play. He wanted to shoot that. He was obsessed with that. He wanted, yep. to, shoot, he wanted to shoot First Blood before Sylvester Stallone did it because uh, that Rambo character, that all took place in the mountains in eastern Kentucky. That's right. The novel was set there, and then they shot it in the Rockies. The Mighty Tom <laughs> Carter, who is now, I guess, is he retired from South uh, Southwest Missouri University, where he's been the head of the communications department for years. I hope he's retired. He's got some photos. <laughs> he's got some photos that are, uh, you know, nobody had any digital cameras then, but he was quite the photographer, and he's got some things recording us where none of us were taking pictures. None of us were taking pictures during that entire Moorhead deal. No, there were, the university would occasionally take one of a a final dress rehearsal or something. I have a couple of uh, pictures of you from One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. I've seen those. Uh, But I don't know who took them or when. They're black and white. Maybe they were just designed for promo. So when we were living there in the mountains, and of course you grew up there in Haldeman, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. uh, is is the family place still there? Does somebody live there now? Yes, it's still there. And uh, when my father died, my mother moved down here to Mississippi where I live. And uh, she sold the house. And there's a couple of sisters who have bought it and have been trying to take it back to, you know, renovate it, I suppose. I mean, there hadn't, there hadn't been a lot of work done, it, done on it in the 50 years that my parents lived there. A new roof. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that was the big, that was the big uh, you know, renovation project. So, yeah, it's still there. The, the road is paved. That's the big difference. And there's... Uh, they have uh, piped-in town water. Wow, how civilized. Well, yeah, while taking away the grade school and the store and even the zip code. So it's kind of an unusual trade, water and blacktop, traded in for zip code and a grade school. What made you start writing about the mountains, Chris? What, how'd that all start? Well, I always wrote when I was a kid, but I wrote, I wrote whatever I was reading. Uh, I was a big reader. I read two, sometimes three books a day, and... I think that the desire to escape into the imaginary world of, of novels eventually shifted into the realization that an even more interesting escape would be to invent the imaginary worlds of my, myself. So I started doing that when I was a, a boy, but you know, I would write Sherlock Holmes stories, or I would write Hardy Boys stories, or uh, I, tried to, I read Tom Sawyer and tried to write a Tom Sawyer novel when I was a kid. And then... Uh, Shifted into journalism, I guess, in the for the school paper, uh, the high school paper, sports. I could write about the sports editor. I was a sports editor and had a little column. In my early 20s, I was reading voraciously to 
kind of catch up because I hadn't studied literature and there's just big holes in my education I needed to fill in. I started reading some of these writers and realized that they were writing about where they'd grown up, you know, I, and I didn't know that that was the way it worked. Uh, Hemingway, for example, with Michigan or Winesburg, Ohio, which is set in Winesburg. The, these writers were writing about land that was really familiar to them, and I, it had never occurred to me to do that. I had always wanted to do the opposite. There was no way I wanted to write about where I was from. I wanted to get the hell out of there. I wanted to get to New York City. I wanted to live in Los Angeles. I wanted an exotic, glamorous life. But when I realized that these writers, this is what writers did, I thought I'd try it. So I wrote, started writing about Eastern Kentucky in my early 20s, around 24, 25 years old. I realized, Tom, that, you know, writing is pretty difficult. But if I was writing about a world that I intimately knew, it made it a little simpler. It, it eased off some of the pressure. You know, that Kentucky Straight was an amazing book. I was never so proud of one of my friends when that came out. And I thought, okay, Chris has got a book of short stories. They were riveting. They were visceral. It changed the face of short stories, I think, in America. I mean, I've read all the book reviews. But they were amazing short stories writing about writing about a neglected part of the country. Like you say, mm -hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't real glamorous. Everybody had seen Deliverance. Everybody had their preconceptions of a quote-unquote hillbilly, that stuff was amazing. And that has led all the way up here now, 20 years later, to uh, Country Dark, which is in stores now. Thanks, Tom. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, this book is, I wouldn't say it's a follow-up to it, because everything I've written is set there. And it's still trying to address exactly what you said, which is a neglected population with massively incorrect preconceptions about life there and the kind of people who live there and the bigotry that, that occurs towards the people who live in the hills of eastern Kentucky, parts of West Virginia, parts of Tennessee. I think you even told me at the time when I, we, uh, I had talked to you on the phone or something about Kentucky Strike, and you told me about Brees DJ Pancake. That's right. And you said, read those stories. And I try mm -hmm. to tell people that, and they just think I'm joking with the name. They can't get past the name. Well, that was his name. I mean, the DJ was, was not his name. It was uh, his, one of his first stories was in Atlantic Monthly Magazine, and the editors made a mistake. They made a typo with his name, and they put a an apostrophe between a capital D and a capital J. He was delighted by it and just kept it. He thought it was hilarious that these big shots uh, would just make such a stupid mistake. He was across uh, the state line around the Kanawha River Valley. He was talking, writing about coal mining country in West Virginia. Well, he was the first one I, I book that I'd read that was about the world that I knew. Until then, and then until my book, after that, there was all the work had been was uh, set in the 1930s and 40s. There was nothing about the more contemporary Appalachia. Uh, after the during and after the completion of the interstate, which was a big change, the Vietnam War had a big impact on it, and the so-called war on poverty. That was the world that I knew, and it was not ever depicted in, in literature. So I, that's been my sort of lifelong goal, was to try to provide the people of the Hills with their own literature and also provide the outside readers with a, a realistic portrayal of, of life there rather than all the BS that they hear and read and see in TV and movies. Because it's never been done just right. It's never been done just exactly right. It's always been cleaned up and it's always been cliché. 
Well, or it's been dirtied up in order to uh, for another cliche, and it's trafficking and trafficking in stereotypes, and I don't believe in that. So, Chris, later on in life, you crossed paths even with my family. You were in the Grand Canyon with my sister at one time. That's right. And then you were in Roseville, California, with my sister and Bill at one time. But you That's came right. through and yeah. visited or something, man. I, You've been coast to coast. I visited her several times. I know your mom, your brother, and I believe that I may have had a Thanksgiving with your family at one time, Tom. It, my parents did not celebrate Thanksgiving, which is pretty unusual. And that always left me at loose ends and looking around for a meal. <laughs> <laughs> some, of those, some of those meals were with your family. Wow, man, I'm telling you, yeah. people, uh, you know, I try to tell people about you. And I, I said, yeah, did you ever see Weeds? Did you ever see Treme? Did you ever see uh, uh, True Blood? Arf, Chris, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to call you that i don't even know where right. i don't even know where arf came from uh, when i was 14 and we met i had a t-shirt of a of a dog playing basketball with converse all-stars on all four feet and there was just a little word balloon that went to him and he was saying arf man you got to be careful when you're a kid things stick <laughs> i didn't mind it i thought it was an unusual uh i, I liked it nobody knew who i was and, I, and then i just wore that t-shirt all the time until it just rotted off my body you know i kind of liked it i got attention from from you and your buddies and guys older than you and that was that was important to me uh, when I was 14 and 15. You know, I didn't have older brothers and older sisters and suddenly here were these people who gave me a nickname and were willing to interact with me. I liked it. So I, I appreciate it, Tom. I appreciate the friendship you uh, extended to me 40-some years ago. Well, man, Arf, I don't know what to say. You're my brother. We live together and we've got the theater blood, which is a special kind of connection, people who've worked in theater together. Yeah. I loved it. That was the best part of our life, and uh, that's one, the only good thing about social media is being able to look and see everybody who was part of that Moorhead scene, find out how they're doing. You know, I'm so proud of them, and I have so much nostalgia for all those people, and unfortunately, we we buried a lot of those people over the past yeah. couple of years, yeah. Yeah, I love yeah. Sam Butler, love Sam Spradlin, and Greg Etter, rest in peace, all you guys. Well, we're that's what happens. You know, a lot of those people went on to, because Moorhead was a teaching school. I even got a teaching uh, certificate. They're retired from uh, Kentucky State Education. I'm glad they were able to retire before the governor and his uh, <laughs> wrong-headed dismantling of the Kentucky education system. Yes. That, it's uh, under look, attack. Yeah, it is but under you know, attack. I, I started writing plays when I was, uh, after you had graduated, my senior year, I wrote two plays that were produced at Moorhead. Oh, kind of. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it kind of jump-started my interest in writing. You know, I don't think I, I, I didn't really either have what it took to be an actor or I didn't want to do what seemed to be necessary. And I liked the idea of writing plays. That led to, you know, the short stories. But I put all that theater background to use when I worked in Hollywood. It's, you know, the, most of the best people that I worked with in Los Angeles had come out of a theater background. It was the terminology, that closeness, that acceptance. You're talking about writing for True Blood, Weeds, and Treme? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have an exactly. agent at that point saying, Arf, um, uh, Chris, um, we're going to work on you, we're going to get you writing these screenplays for this, or did you pursue that? How did that work? Well, it was a fluke. Like my every, Everything in my life seems like it's a fluke. I wrote a short story, and a guy optioned it, meaning that he buys the future right for it and I and he offered me some money and I didn't think it was enough money it wasn't really very much and I'd always heard that Hollywood was where the money was so sure. I said well how come how about you give me more money 
And the guy said, I can't because I also have to hire a screenwriter. And there's a minimum that for the screenwriters that, you know, that they want. This was on a phone conversation. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, how about give me half the option that you've offered and hire me to write the screenplay and pay me half of what you pay the other guy. You save money and I get more. So you're doing this negotiating. You don't have an agent fighting oh, yeah, for you at I this point. Oh, yeah, I did it all on the phone. And the guy said, yeah, sounds good. So I proceeded to write one of the world's worst screenplays in history. For? What uh, was this for? For this short story called Out of the Woods. And he loved the story, but I didn't know what I was doing. But it was my first one, and then eventually I learned how to do it and wrote a pilot. And it was that pilot that got the attention in True Blood. It was a pilot set in, set in the South, and True Blood wanted a... They didn't have any Southern writers. They had all Los Angeles-based, experienced TV writers. And the guy, the showrunner, wanted a, you know, a Southern voice. And he liked my pilot, and he hired me. So, so th- that's what started it, really. At After th- that, I got an agent. Uh-huh. <laughs> at, at, at this point, was True Blood already in production, and they were looking for a change, or it did not start? Started yet. It had not started. Oh, no uh, kidding. You were part of the Genesis? I loved that show. Oh, yeah. I mean, we were all working on it in kind of secret. Like, nothing had been on the air. They decided to write and produce all the episodes first. Typically, that's not the way it works with television shows. They get started, and then it takes a lot longer if you write everything first and then shoot it all. But it makes for a better product. Anyhow, so, yeah, we were, it was a blast. Sit around talking about vampires. Like, for example, did vampires breathe? This was a conversation that went on for an hour, and I made my first contribution, Tom, which you'll appreciate. It was a serious conversation with seven people in a room trying to figure out all of sort of the rules and the strictures and limitations of vampires if they were real. One of them was if they could breathe. And here's my big contribution. I said, well, maybe vampires can't breathe, but our actors have to. (laughs) (laughs) No wonder that was such a good show. Yeah, yeah. And they just looked at me like, well, that boy earned his money today. Chris, those rules are important to me when seeing a movie or anything. What are oh, yeah. the what are the rules of these vampires? What are the rules of these werewolves? And are they going to be consistent right. all the way through? I mean, that's true for any screen narrative or a novel too that departs from conventional reality, where we're bound by physics. You know, gravity and light and all this stuff. Water. I mean, I think the strength of these storylines are are the, are also the strength of the underlying rules that are put in place that have their own logic that makes sense, and you follow them. The True Blood went off the uh, chart a little bit with some of the, the fairy stories and the different dimensions, and uh, Sookie was a fairy, and uh, they had a little bit of everything in that. Okay, all right. But did you not come Didn't you not come back and write for Fats Domino at one point? I wrote, I, I left True Blood and went to Weeds. The fact is, Tom, this is kind of absurd to admit, they give you a production schedule after three or four months, and it's just really a weekly schedule of when you have to be at the set. And the first day on Monday was at 7 o'clock, so it was a 12-hour day. So it was 7 in the morning till 7 at night. And then every day through the week, it was a couple hours later until Friday. We were starting at 7 at night and finishing at 7 in the morning on Saturday morning, which I realized would only then I'd go home and sleep, do laundry, and then have to be back to work Monday at 7 in the morning. So in my naivete, I assumed this was a mistake. And I went to the boss and said, listen, I don't think this is right. I said, why are, why are we, this can't be right. Why do we have the schedule like this? And so we have to have night shoots. I said, why? And he said, because, Chris, they are vampires. <laughs> <laughs> I was out in the middle of the night, and they would come running up to me and say, listen, the sun's going to come up. We're going to lose the darkness. What 
can you cut out of these last scenes that won't damage the script? And I'd say, well, okay, I'll, I'll just cut away. So anyhow, after that, I decided that I didn't want to work on any supernatural shows anymore. And I, that's when I went to Weeds, because it's all shot during the day. <laughs> Man, that is incredible. <laughs> Hey, uh, all that True Blood stuff, is that all on location down in Louisiana? Was that actually in a Bayou location, or was some of that done in L.A.? They had set, they had uh, studio sets in L.A. for the primary locations, like Sookie's house and the grandmother's house, the bar. Merlot's. Uh, Merlot's bar was a, a beautiful set. And then every, every six weeks or so, they would fly a skeleton crew and the actors down to Shreveport, and that's where they uh, would shoot the location for multiple episodes and then any big ones. It was there that I wrote a script where that, uh, I burned a house. I don't know if you ever saw that episode. I saw them all. There's a bunch of, there's a bunch of vampires in the house, and these guys throw Molotov cocktails through the window uh-huh. burn them out right during the day. And I wrote it thinking, well, those guys will never let me. They'll make me change it. Or, at that, they will have one of those fake fires where there's just like a little trough in the, in the window, you know, or do it with light. But lo and behold... We went down to Shreveport. They had, HBO had found and purchased a condemned building, gutted it, and then filled it with pipes that contained propane, and then parallel to them ran pipes containing water. And when the time came, they shot the propane through the pipes, burnt, set the whole damn house on fire, then cut the propane and sent the water through. And it was the happiest day of my life, Tom. I bet it was something else. I can't imagine. I bet that was pretty heady stuff. Uh, I was hollering, yelling, and screaming. I mean, it was a tense situation. There was firemen there, fire trucks, and, you know, you're playing around with burning down a house. Uh, There was medics, and I got so excited, I just started yelling and screaming, and gosh, they came running over. They thought maybe I'd gotten hurt, you know, or burnt or something. And then then they just said, oh, no. No, it's just the writer. He's excited. <laughs> it was really, Tom, watching a house burnt down that I had imagined was fantastic. Hey, tell me a little bit about Rough Trade. What was the genesis? What was the end of that? Tough Trade. Tough, tough trade. trade. Okay, Tough Trade yeah. taking place. The darker, yeah. the underbelly of uh, country music in Nashville. Yeah, I mean, I got hired to write a pilot, and I said, sure. Uh, I had not watched television, and at that time, that was the pilot that got me all this work. I had not watched television in about 25 years. As a kid, we got one channel from West Virginia and you know, I had to make it through the hills and over the through the woods. If it rained, we didn't get that. So I was bored out of my head by watching fuzzy black and white one channel at 14 or 15. So I just quit. The guy called and said, we'd like you to write a TV pilot. And I said, okay, I love TV. I watch it all the time. <laughs> you know? And he said, he said, we want you to write it about country music, the world of country music in Nashville. Now, and again, I had grown up, that's all I heard as a child. Every radio station, every car radio, every store, it was the only music that was anybody ever played that was available. So again, I had gotten tired of it. Embrace punk rock and Bruce Springsteen and Bob Dylan as soon as I heard it. But I said to the guy on the phone, I love country music, listen to it all the time. Uh, I mean, I'm, if they're going to offer me a job, I'm going to say whatever they whatever they want to hear, I will say. And then finally I said, do you pay? And he said, yes. And I said, I will do it. So that was how it started. We shot the pilot. Sam Shepard was the one of the stars in it. You know, then Network just went belly up. They Later the, turned out that one of the big shots had been embezzling. So they just couldn't afford to take it to a series. But that script is what led to working for True Blood and then Weeds and then Treme where I went down there uh, to New Orleans and sat in on meetings and asked a lot of questions and was assigned a script, a freelance script, and went back and started working on it. 
back to Mississippi. And then they called and said, okay, well, we have a chance to put Fats Domino in the script. You know, his schedule will work out. So we want you to substitute that, these scenes, for something else. And I said, yeah, no problem. So then I wrote it, and it occurred to me that, you know, Fats Domino was, he was a pretty old guy at that time and had been sick, you know, and I thought I should be careful about the lines that I write for him because I don't want it to be a problem, you know. He, he uh, uh, I just need to be very careful of what I either ask him as an actor to do, and he wasn't trained as an actor, or the lines I asked him to say. So I wrote the boss and told him my concerns, or I called him, and here's what he said. He said, you know, Chris, don't worry about it. We will just shoot, and whatever Fats Domino says, you can put in the script later. <laughs> <laughs> That's an honor, man, what American icon. Yeah. Hey. So I thought, this, this job gets easier and easier. You mentioned Sam Shepard. That, that hit me hard. He got ALS, and he was gone quickly, and he was uh, you know heavily involved in Kentucky. And I saw a pic- picture of you two together, man. That was a rough yeah. one. Him and Harry Dean Stanton we lost last year. Yeah, yeah, Harry Dean. I met both those guys. And Sam and I became buddies. He always just called me that kid from Kentucky, even, you know, I was over 50, because he had read, like you, Kentucky Straight, and had liked it and just had gotten in touch somewhere along the line. I don't remember. And his work was, his plays had a big impact on me as a young playwright and then as a writer. Uh, I like Sam. And Harry Dean was just a sweetheart. You know, I told him, I met him, I saw him in a restaurant and I introduced myself and said, I'm from Kentucky. And that's all it took. He just talked to me for a long time. Sweet little fellow. Country Dark. Yeah. In stores. Tucker, Korean War vet, going to the hills. What made you decide to do it after the Korean War? A few, a few reasons. This was the Kentucky that I was a child in. It, it takes place after the Korean War and then mostly in the 1960s. I was a child. So my perspectives of that of life then was as, as a kid, and I had written about that. But in my thinking about it all, I realized that that adult of that period and the natives of the hills of that period, they were experiencing Appalachian culture right before a drastic shift with that included the interstate cable television and now the internet and the world of Appalachia has not seen a lot of changes since the late 1700s frankly just because of the geographic isolation so I was interested in writing about it uh, from the perspective of these adults who were engaged in their lives, not even realizing that the world and the culture that they were um, living in was getting ready to, to change uh, in a, a major way and not always for the best. That's kind of what started it. That's a great story, Chris, and I'm going to have to give you props for one thing. The way that you addressed the problem of birth defects so directly mm-hmm without any mawkish, sentimental, hallmark moments, just people taking care of their kids with a beginning, a middle, an end, and hitting all the right notes and not one cliche involved in that. That was a staggering story. Well, thanks, Tom. I mean, uh, that was, again, the way the world that, it reflects the world that that I grew up in, where where there's a sense of community and everybody looks out for each other, including no, no matter what the situation is. Families looked out, but then we all looked out for each other as well. And that included uh, kids who had uh, either developmental disabilities that I was in grade school with. You know, there wasn't any sort of bullying or making fun of. It was more a recognition that these are people who, you know, have a, a valid way of living and, a, and part of the community and are vulnerable and maybe need a little bit more looking after than the rest of us tough boys. 
I understand, man. That was really refreshing because just because of how straightforward it was, nobody even approaches that in literature or movies unless it's all about a, you know, sentimental hallmark, a weeping yeah. guitar moment. Yeah, man, that was tough. That was really cool. What's, yeah. a, what's a wood sorrel root? Wood sorrel? Because you mentioned Tucker eating squirrel and wood sorrel and said it was the best meal he ever had. Well, it's just a root off of a plant out there that uh, you could kind of season uh, meat with. The hills of eastern Kentucky have more variety of flora and fauna than any single region in the United States. And part of this because it was never exploited that much because the geography is so impenetrable. Part of it is where it's situated in terms of its climate. You know, it's kind of the, the top of the Mid-South, so to speak. And all those hills create one side. There's a lot of shade and water. And the other side, there's just less. So all kinds of stuff can grow. And a lot of this stuff that, um, that we're talking about really likes the shady, slightly wetter side of the woods. And it's just not available in most parts of the country, especially now where we're just cutting down everything inside. Hey, Country yeah. country Dark, available in your local bookstore, or can you get it at Amazon? You can get it wherever you buy a book. There's independent bookstores. There's lots of online uh, sources. You can probably buy one from you. Uh, I will sign them for you uh, if you send them to Tommy, care of the station, sure. and he will send them to me. Okay, because Country Dark rocks, and people have been asking about you since I did this. I talked about Kentucky Straight, and you got some fans here in mid-Maryland. Uh, well, I'm happy uh, to hear that, and I'd love to come up there and hang out with everybody. I'd love to come up and see you again, Tom. Come see me, man. I want to come down to Mississippi and see you. Every time something happens, life kicks up again. You know how that goes, man. We've got a lot of history. Uh, well, we haven't seen each other in a long time, as we, we established maybe 30 years, 25 years. Something like that. I don't remember the last time. I think it was probably in New York. I think I had quit that moving job, and I, I really don't remember, Tom. It's been a long time. I was wondering about those dates, too, exactly, and what happened back then, because that was all kind of vague. You know, we're lucky to be alive because New York City was the Wild West. Have you been to New York lately? It is nothing, yeah. like, the, nothing like the town we lived in. No, we were there in 1978. That was when we. Oh, that uh, was, when I moved there. Yeah, that you was were there a, maybe a little bit earlier. Yeah, I was there a year earlier. I was there just in, in time for the summer of Sam, for the blackout, for when Dinkins yeah. said New York is broke, we're bankrupt, we can't control the city. Perfect place for a young man trying to find himself. I loved it. Uh, I just looked around and thought, gosh, you know, this is supposed to be scary. Let let these people go into the hills of Kentucky and see how they'd get by. Thanks for checking in. Those people looking at me here. Thanks for calling. We'll do this again. Okay, Tom. I'm game anytime. Country dark. <laughs> Thanks, Country boy. dark. Country, Kentucky straight. Country dark. The Tucker boys. Right. Great story. Right. Thanks, man. God Thank bless. You. Later, brother. All right. Bye-bye.